Welcome to the Confluence of Ideas, the Confluence Investment Management Podcast. Today, we will be revisiting what may be some of the longer-term investment-related ramifications of the COVID-19 crisis, and we'll be discussing how long-lasting some of these ramifications might be. I'm Phil Adler, your moderator, and our guest is Bill O'Grady, Confluence Investment Management Chief Market Strategist. Bill, you theorize that the pandemic is accelerating the trend in this country away from efficiency and toward equality. Can we begin with a brief review? What do you mean? Well, as I discussed in the past podcast, in capitalist societies, the dominant trend is toward efficiency. That means over time, returns to capital steadily increase and inequality rises. At some point, inequality reaches a level that becomes politically difficult to sustain. However, despite this tension, history shows that the reversal to an equality cycle requires a catastrophic event, such as mass mobilization war, revolution, a breakdown in social order, or a pandemic. In efficiency cycles, the policy mix is designed to increase supply side of the economy. Thus, globalization and deregulation are implemented. Marginal tax rates are reduced to support risk-taking. In equality cycles, on the other hand, the policy mix is designed to boost demand. Thus, deglobalization and regulation are implemented. Marginal tax rates are high to discourage innovation and disruption. While catastrophe ends efficiency cycles, inflation leads to the end of equality cycles. So, to summarize, we can expect a shift to equality to result in increased marginal tax rate, increased regulations, barriers to globalization, increased tariffs, increased quotas, a growth in the power of organized labor, and an increase in inflation. And the pandemic has only strengthened the power and speed of this transformation? Yes, That shift has been partially underway for a while. Globalization has come under pressure. We note that in 2016, neither candidate for president supported the Trans-Pacific Partnership, for example. President Trump has reversed nearly 90 years of U.S. trade policy, tilting toward fewer tariffs by applying them broadly. But the pandemic will likely accelerate this process in two ways. Number one, the hostility toward China is reaching new heights. China has been a key part of globalization and rising tensions will likely lead companies to begin the process of at least diversifying supply chain. And secondly, the pandemic has revealed how dependent the U.S. is on foreign suppliers for medical inputs. This dependency makes policymakers and citizens uncomfortable and the drive to bring these critical processes back to at least North America will be strong. Well, let's focus on a few of these factors, beginning with the labor and capital. It it may appear to many middle-class people that they, here in the U.S., that they've been losing ground economically in recent years. Are they right? What, what do these statistics show? Income data derived from the IRS shows near-record levels of income inequality. Data on median income shows that income for the median household has lagged productivity. Long-term studies show that real income for unskilled workers has been below trend since the early 1970s. However, all these studies carry some degree of flaws. 
Although income levels are static, the people within them may not be. In other words, people at the high end may not have started there and people at the low end may not have started there either. But other studies do suggest that income or class mobility has declined over the past two decades, suggesting those with money are managing to entrench themselves in that status and lending that status to their offspring. Now, how might the pandemic help to reverse this? In history, the impact of pandemic was rather straightforward. As workers died, the supply was constrained, and this drove wages higher and reversed the efficiency cycle. With the advent of modern medicine, we have had much better control over infectious disease, and so the same sort of rise in fatalities seen in the past is less likely this time. In the current era, the most likely way this reversal would come about is through political pressure from those most adversely affected by the virus. So far, capital has gotten most of the support, but it isn't inconceivable that populist demands for a shift in national income to the lower end of the income brackets would not come as a shock. Another characteristic of our economy in recent years is the emphasis placed on shareholder value, bolstered by stock repurchases and a a focus on ever-increasing dividends, and also the relegation of investments in employees to a lower status. Again, could you give us a couple of significant statistics and address how the pandemic might affect this? Shareholder primacy has been an article of faith in most business schools. In real life, however, allocating gross income from business operations is a tug of war. Labor has claims, future business through investment does too, and the virus event makes it clear that having idle cash on a balance sheet may not be a bad thing. Merely passing on income to the owners doesn't bring loyalty from workers, prepare for future growth, or protect the firm from a rainy day. What made the shareholder value idea powerful was that it aligned the interests of management with shareholders. This was accomplished by increasingly tying executive pay to the stock price. Under these conditions, management had an incentive to boost the short-term share price to increase their own compensation. It also led to less desire to treat labor as anything other than an input into the production process. There's an old adage in management, you get what you incentivize. It should be no surprise that senior management will structure the business to reward shareholders and themselves at the cost of everyone else. Fixing this will likely require regulation. The most obvious would be restrictions on share buybacks. More controversial would be to break the link between stock performance and executive pay. The pandemic has revealed that firms that paid out profits to shareholders are now asking for government bailouts. This looks a lot like privatizing profits and socializing losses. The political backlash is mounting. We know that dividends may take a hit while the pandemic rages. That makes sense. But what about afterwards? Might a return to normalcy include a retreat from this emphasis on dividends? Dividends tend to be less controversial because they're a long-standing method of divvying up gross profits. Some industries have less growth potential and thus the only way they can really reward their shareholders is through dividends. If management participates less in the bounty, dividends will probably be okay. We've seen during this pandemic countries strengthen their borders and, and we've also seen a growth in nationalistic tendencies. We think of the United States, but you've already 
talk a couple of minutes ago about how China is evolving along these lines. Will this be a lingering trend? And, and what does it mean for investment strategies? Well, it means two things. First, deglobalization will increase costs. Higher inflation tends to come from narrowing supply chains. Rising inflation tends to be bearish for financial assets. Second, rising protectionism on goods can lead to the same on capital flows. We are seeing an attempt by the United States to restrict U.S. retirement funds from buying Chinese equities. We could see a situation where investing in overseas stocks becomes more difficult. You also argue that tax policy may be impacted by the pandemic. How? One of the reasons managers have an incentive to skew toward shareholder value is that, compared to 40 years ago, high-income households are able to keep more of their income. Interestingly enough, there isn't a lot of evidence to suggest that high marginal tax rates bring more revenue to government. Instead, the power of high marginal tax rates is that it changes the incentives of the powerful. With high marginal tax rates, there's less incentive to maximize shareholder value because the gains of high income end up being lost to taxes. Can we expect greater taxation of higher income individuals? At some point, we do. It remains to be seen when that actually occurs. Do you see workers getting used to and perhaps demanding more government support, for instance, national health care? We divide populists into two categories, left-wing and right-wing populists. The former tend to want to reduce income gaps by the socialization of capital and through major government income support programs. Thus, Social Security and a single-payer health care program tend to be left-wing populist programs. Right-wing populists behave differently. They try to improve the lot of the lower classes by reducing the supply of labor. The primary policies are deglobalization, which reduces imports, and immigration, and weakening offshoring. And so the answer to your question depends on which populace win. Our bet is on the right-wing populace. But that doesn't mean we won't get some form of universal spending programs, but they would probably be more like a safety net health care from the government rather than a single payer. Instead, if the right-wing populace wins, government will be more about restricting labor competition, which fosters unionization. Do you see in all of this a less dynamic economy and higher inflation? I do, but it will take time. Over the past 40 years, the U.S. has built significant capacity. It will take some time for that capacity to be exhausted, which will lead to rising price levels. But in general, less globalization will lead to a less dynamic economy. And how does higher inflation typically affect investment decisions? Rising prices undermine the real value of earnings. The way investors usually adjust is by paying less for each dollar of earnings, leading to the compression of the price earnings multiple. In fixed income, it leads to higher interest rates, reducing the value of bonds. How can investors prepare for this new world? We recommend two actions, both of which we have implemented in our asset allocation models. First, in fixed income, we use target date corporate and treasury exchange traded funds to create bond ladders. Bond laddering protects investors from rising rates by creating a mechanism where the duration of the portfolio declines on a systemic basis. Second, we have added precious metals to portfolios. Both tactics reduce inflation risk. Thank you, Bill. This has been the Confluence of Ideas, featuring Confluence Investment Management Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady. For more resources, we point you to confluenceinvestment.com.
You can also find us on Twitter at ConfluenceIM. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. We wish to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice, and this information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Lander.